Welcome everyone to this uh, week's edition of CRE 101. Uh, if this is your first time tuning in, uh, CR, we started this group back in about April of 2020. And the reason why we started it was because we wanted to create a forum and an environment where people could learn about commercial real estate topics. Uh, so really it's tailored towards investors, business owners, brokers, really anyone who has an interest in learning about commercial real estate. And today we actually have Aaron Zucker uh, to talk about real retail syndications, which I'm super interested in because that's one of my specializations is retail. So I'm interested to see how he's been able to uh, really grow uh, his fund over the last few years. So Aaron, welcome to the, the meetup. Yeah, thanks for having me. I appreciate it. It's uh, always good to, to meet and get to know new people. So if anybody wants to reach out after the fact, I'm readily pretty easy to find, but I'll throw my information in the chat as well, which is kind of an advantage to those of us who are on Zoom. And if sure. you're on Facebook Live and want to connect with me too, uh, happy to do that. Oh, yeah. And, and what I usually do, and I, I told everyone this as well. So we always record these meetings. So I always post it in the show descriptions in my on my YouTube channel. So if you guys want to check that out in the future, feel free to do so. I'll also post his social links as well. He also does have a cool podcast that where he talks to different people in the, in various different, in the commercial real estate industry. So definitely worth a watch. Um, so to start out, I mean, we usually like to learn a little bit about the, the people that come on. So if you could tell us a little bit about yourself and kind of tell us what got you into commercial real estate. Yeah, sure. So uh, again, my name is Aaron Zucker. I'm based in Charlotte, North Carolina. I have a company called Zig stands for Zucker Investment Group. We specialize in buying value-add retail properties across the eastern half of the country that are unanchored. So they're either single-tenant net lease or you know, three to five, maybe seven-tenant strip centers. The avenue for us to making money is there's got to be some good story on lease-up, whether if it's through vacancy lease-up or repositioning or improving market, uh, you know, improving the NOI through taking below market rents to at-market rents upon lease expiration or through renewing existing tenants uh, and restructuring deals with them that way. We, I started the company in 2018. We've bought 12 properties in nine different states, ranging as far north and west as like the Cincinnati, Chicago region, as far south and west as Dallas. We've done a couple of deals down in Florida. And then of course, we've done some close to home as well uh, here in, in, not too far from here in Raleigh, North Carolina. So we're we're geographically agnostic, and I was always very bullish on being geographically uh, agnostic when I started the company. My thesis on that is even I'm even more bullish on doing so today as a result of this pandemic. Obviously, if you own exclusively properties in New York City, uh, that can be that would probably be pretty challenging over the last year. So, geographic diversification is something that uh, we we continue to bet all in on, and it's something that I enjoy and. I think that's one of the beauties of owning retail properties. It's not an intensive management situation, especially when they're small and anchored retail deals like a multifamily deal or, or a large office building could be. So it, it seems to be working for us and we're excited to continue growing. We are targeting to do hopefully 12 to 15 acquisitions this year, which sounds crazy out to say out loud because it would double the size of the company, but it's something that we're equipped, willing and able to do, provided that the market can cooperate for us. And that's why we're willing and able to hustle around town and, and do what we have, do whatever we need to do to procure the right deals. Um, so that's a little highlight on Zig. Oh, for sure. And, and again, dream big, right? You got to, you got to set big goals and, and make it happen. So that, that's awesome, man. So the, the, the premise of today's call really is, is related to retail syndications. Can you kind of give those individuals out there that maybe don't know what a syndication is? How, how exactly do you 
yeah. create a retail syndicate? Sure. sure. So there's three ways to buy real estate, right? There's completely on your own, on your own balance sheet, which um, I've been fortunate to do a little bit of. Then the second avenue is through a fund model where I get everybody on this call to throw in a hundred grand and we have a target. We have an idea of what we're going to buy, but we don't have a specific deal in mind. So maybe I raise, you know, we raise a hundred million dollars to buy industrial deals in the Southeast at, you know, six to eight caps. And that's our sandbox that we're going to play in and we're going to focus. And that's the mission of the fund. And then the third avenue to uh, purchasing commercial real estate, which is the, the structure that we typically have at Zig is through syndication. And that's, uh, we'll, we'll go out, we'll put a property under contract or we'll work toward putting a property under contract and I'll call Raphael and I'll call Mike and I'll call Richard and Jim and Marcus and say, Hey guys, got this deal. What do you think of it? Here's the model. Here's how it's structured. Do you want to kick in a hundred grand a piece at 500 K in equity for a $2 million project and, and take it down and buy it? So that's the structure that we use at Zig. Uh, it's a friends and family model, meaning, you know, I'm doing business with, my friends and family, right? I'm calling, you know, my sister who's done well in tech or my friends that are brokers in different markets, which we do a lot of and saying, Hey, you want, you know, what do you think of this deal? Do you like it? Do you want to kick in? And there's, there's advantages and disadvantages to both. The disadvantages of a syndication model like Ziggs is especially if you don't have great capital resources, we're fortunate where we do. In fact, we have more equity than deals right now. So that's sort of our challenge, but the, the, the disadvantage in theory, if all things are equal, is you don't technically have the money earmarked ready to go when you're chasing a great opportunity. The upside to that is, 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 is and, and I've been a, an LP, a limited partner on deals before, where, I'm, where Zig is not the sponsor and I'm investing in somebody else's deal. And as an LP for me, because I'm in the business maybe, and because you know, I'm very you know, I care about where my money's going. I like to know and touch and feel and see the deal and be able to selectively say, I like this Chipotle deal that, that Raphael is doing in Orlando, but I don't like the deal that Ernie brought me in Chicago. So I get to pick and choose where if I was invested in a fund that Raphael and Ernie own together, I'd be doing both deals, whether I like it or not. So selectivity for the limited partners is beneficial uh, in the syndication model. And the other thing about the syndication model that I prefer as opposed to a fund model is deal structures can change acquisition criteria can change. So in a syndication model, you know, we've had our pref, which is the preferred return to the, to the equity into the deal shift on deals because, you know, it might be a high barrier entry to market where the rents below market. So our pref goes down on one deal, but it goes up on others because we're taking a higher risk tolerance. And therefore the people who are putting in the money should have, you know, you know, should be rewarded for the risk that they're willing to take. Whereas in a fund, you know what you're getting into on a structure wise, but you don't, and you have a pretty good idea of what you're getting into asset wise, but you don't have any say in that. So to each his own, I know plenty of people that I know, like, and respect that run fund models. And I've worked for companies that had fund models in the past. And it's certainly easier to scale that way because you know that the equity is earmarked and ready to go. I just, I, for us, we're not short for people calling, you know, I'm getting, between five and six phone calls a day on average, I would say from either repeat or potential new investors are saying, Hey, where's the next deal? There's, there's no shortage of capital out there right now. So uh, it's not, it's not a cog in the wheel that we've had yet. The cog in the wheel has been finding the appropriate deals to place that capital into. 
So for us, we prefer the syndication model and it's, it's been great thus far. And I think a lot of people, my limited partners seem to be very pleased with the model thus far, given their appetite to want to come back for more. And the fact that they, if they pass on one, they can come in on the next one and it's not really a big deal. It doesn't, you know, it's no big deal because they're not missing out on the grand scheme opportunity, if you will. Definitely. No, for sure. Oh, that's, that's a great, that's a great insight for sure. So as far as the syndication model is concerned, you've chosen to focus on the retail industry. Is there a reason for that? Is that primarily yeah. because of your background or why, why exactly you choose to go retail? Yeah, I can get into the, the whole background if you if you want the, the, the grander version of my story, or I can kind of get into the sports center version for I'll start with the sports center version. If you want to dig deeper, that's up to you. It's your show. I'm just here to hang out. Uh, I spent my entire career in the retail sector working for shopping shopping center owners. Some companies were large. One the last one I was with before I went out on my own was a family office down in South Florida. And I, I was very motivated to want to own retail shopping centers. I loved, always have loved retail. I think it's the most dynamic asset class. I'm going to probably offend some people when I say this, but I think retail is like playing chess and some of the other asset classes kind of like playing checkers. There's a lot of moving parts. I've always used the example where you might be, and I'm sitting at my, my, the office that I'm in right now is on a corner location. So I always use the example when people come in that are learning about retail in general, that Starbucks would love to be in this and they would pay whatever it takes to be on the corner that I'm sitting on right now, but they wouldn't go across the street if the rent was free. And the reason being is because this is on the going to work side and people can make a right in and a quick right out and it's quick accessibility going to downtown Charlotte. Whereas on the opposite side of the street, not as many people are drinking coffee at seven o'clock at night. Sure, they can sell some coffee then, but Starbucks is hyper-focused and knows their business model on a macro basis. And that's why I love the nuances associated with retail. And I think uh, that that nuance makes it a higher barrier to entry asset type. And I think that additionally coupled with everybody thinks that all retail is dying and that Amazon's taking over the whole world and no other retail merchant will ever open a store successfully again. I dispute that narrative all the time, but there's a selfish part of me that says, great, let it keep up, let it keep going because uh, it gives us at Zig better opportunities to buy deals at better yield. So, you know, if it's if that if that media narrative is going to continue to stay out there, I'm not really complaining, even though I disagree with it fundamentally. I, I, I'm still very bullish on retail. No, I 100% agree with you, and that's why that's one of the reasons why I decided to ask that is because, like you said, retail is such a dynamic industry, um, and for that exact reason, it's higher barrier to entry. I mean, you can see a lot of content out there related to multifamily um, and various other asset types that are a little bit easier to understand and be able to get into. But in the, in the case of retail, especially when you're talking about large corporations and everything else, I mean, there's a lot more sophistication involved. So it's kind of interesting to hear your take on that, on that as to why you decided to go on the, the retail route. So, yeah, I mean, it, you know, I read a lot and I study entrepreneurs and different and different, not only asset classes, but different industries altogether. And one common, one of the common underlying themes and what I read and study is that they are often saying, if everybody's going right, you should probably consider going left. Now, I'm not the only person who's bullish on retail and our, our space is more than crowded enough for my liking as it is anyway. But in general, when people think about commercial real estate investment, industrial multifamily uh, are certainly more sexy, if you will, right now. Uh, and even prior to the pandemic, retail was sort of like the, uh, the ugly stepchild, even though uh, and people were still really bullish on office and, 
in hospitality at that time. And I'm curious to see where that goes after the fact, but uh, I'll, I'll take everybody else's crumbs that are left on the ground. If that's how <laughs> the marketplace wants to view retail. Oh, for sure. And those crumbs are probably pretty sizable, I'd imagine. So that's awesome. Don't need a right. lot. What's up? We don't need a lot of them. We just need a few crumbs. <laughs> it's been 12 to 15 years, what we're looking for, like I said before. I mean, that's awesome, man. Congrats. So as far as when you're analyzing opportunities, what are, could you tell us a little bit about some of the criteria you look for? Obviously, you know, you wanted to, you're not necessarily geographic specific, but I'm assuming when you start analyzing some of these opportunities, there's some things that you want to make sure are, are check marked uh, before sure. you start moving forward. So maybe if you could highlight a little bit of like what your thought process is when you're looking at opportunities. Absolutely. So we talked a little bit before the application of leasing to create value in the property is that's, that's non-negotiable. That's got to be the case. We have patient, we do have capital that is patient. We will do deals that can take some time to monetize. There just needs to be an inverse relationship with the amount of time that it's going to take, which is high and not fun with the amount of value that can be created on the back end. We're open. We can do one year flip deals. We can do 12 to 15 year holds. As long as there's real value to create through leasing, we're interested. As it relates to the markets, we talked before, geographically agnostic. We really like secondary markets. We play pretty well in the tertiary markets. Uh, we typically will stay away from like super sexy high street urban deals in Manhattan, San Francisco, LA, those types of markets. The thesis being is because we're located in Charlotte, that A, if all of the local developers and investors in those markets pass on the deal and it's being sent to me, something's probably really wrong with it, A. B, in order to operate and understand those markets and all the nuances associated with it, you really need to be there or at least have critical mass in those markets. And that's not our strategy. I'm more inclined to buy a well-located out parcel in Davenport, Iowa, than I am the super sexy uh, Main Street or King Street is the name of the best street in Charleston, for example. It's just, I mean, we'll look at it, but it's not like we're very rarely competitive and uh, I'm very, uh, very jaded in my approach because I'm always thinking, what am I really missing here? So we get really comfortable in the markets where there's patterns. We understand those patterns based uh, on the bones of, of the leasing background in place that, that I come from. So uh, we're totally, we're totally, as far as market fundamentals go, we, we like places with an airport, but it doesn't need that much more. We're, we're, we don't need overwhelming density. As long as there's call it 30,000 people or more in a three to five mile radius, we can play ball in those markets. Now that said, by go, by virtue of going into those markets, we need to be in a, a site there. We need to be at a great location, close proximity to big box retailers, Walmart, Target, first in class grocery stores. I mean, there needs to be a good story with that underlying real estate uh, within those markets. Again, going back to what we're really chasing, we're ultimately what we're trying to do is take the NOI from what it is today, whether if it's zero or in place income and increase it. So the best way to get me excited about a deal is have some vacancy or, or substantially below market rents. You say one or both of those keyword, those key phrases to me, you're going to get my attention, especially if the real estate fundamentals are decent or better. That's awesome. That's great advice. And then also, I mean, you kind of mentioned the the location aspect of things. Obviously, that's dependent on the use as well, right? Because I mean, like you said, you're located currently on on a corner where Starbucks would maybe be attracted to, but right across the street, that's not the case. So I'm sure there's 
there's wiggle room as far as what a good location and accessibility and visibility is. Visibility is mission critical for us. Mm -hmm. Accessibility is two. And it's really important. I, I, I think it's one B to the visibility being one A. I think there's more tenants that can play around with that can compromise a little bit on accessibility, especially if the co-tenancy, meaning the tenants behind the out parcel are strong or within the, the neighboring market. And typically in the markets that we're chasing, there's a higher tolerance for folks to make a left to go to Starbucks than there is in, you know, a, a high, you know, in Atlanta or a Charlotte where traffic counts are insane and you, you, you may die making a left turn across the, the street. Uh, people are willing and able to drive when the market draws from a bigger trade area. So visibility is critical. Accessibility is still really important too. And, and but ultimately it boils down to co-tenancy and traffic counts. I mean, if those things are there, we can lease it. As far as incomes go, if they're high, that's great. If they're middle or you know middle high, that's fine too. That we actually really like play well in those markets too. Low to middle income is even fine too. To me, if you give me people, we can lease it. We just need to know who we're leasing it to. If there's no one there, there's no traffic for anybody. I don't care if you're, you know, gas station or or Louis Vuitton. You gotta have people. So that's that. Our strategy can sort of shape shift based on uh, income levels. So when you first got into the, the, the business of syndication, could you kind of walk us through maybe the first deal that you did, maybe some of the hurdles you had to overcome? Obviously yeah. everyone has issues. Yeah. <laughs> Any deal you're gonna yeah. encounter. So maybe you can if you can kind of highlight some of that your experience on that front. Yeah, for sure. I'll never forget it. So I had invested, let me start by saying something that you did not ask me for, but I'm known to give unsolicited uh, recommendations if I feel passionately enough about a topic. I believe that anybody before being a GP, meaning a general partner or a sponsor, should be an LP, limited partner. That, that does so many things. One, it gives you an education that you're, yes, paying for, but it's an investment, like truly an investment, not like, you know, maybe this, maybe this pays off one day, maybe it doesn't. Like in theory, if you write a check for X and you're investing in a commercial real estate deal, nobody's ever invested with the intent to lose money. So you could get a return and should get a return on X that's greater. So you can make money while getting an education. And if you're tied in closely with the sponsor, you know, maybe that's, maybe that's an opportunity where, okay, if I'm going to invest in the deal, I know I'm in my, I know I'm a small partner. I'm going to be annoying though. Like, do you mind if, since I'm an LP, if I kind of see how you look at the model and talk to the lenders and talk to your partners and talk to the tenants, like people will do that. And if you're co-investing with a sponsor who says you can't do that with me, like, you need to rethink your strategy on investing with that sponsor anyway. So I would say is you take advantage of the fact that you're writing a check, have it turn from X to Y in a good way, get an education alongside with that sponsor. And also you'll get to look at how the, how the limited partners view the deal. When we do our underwriting here at, and the, there is a syndication play involved, which is 99% of the time, we, I don't even look at what the general partner returns are. I really don't until after the deal is like basically done or, or, or yeah, until the basically we bought it. And the reason being is, is I know as a sponsor, I'm making more money than the limited partners, right? We have a promote, we have fees. Like I, that's, and nobody here has ever disputed our structures because we're creating value and we're not egregious in our ask. So I know if the limited partners are happy by virtue of the fact that the general partner is making more money than the limited partners, as long as the limited partners are happy, the deal's a go. So that's how we underwrite deals 
in general. So I think that everybody should be a limited partner before going out on their own and doing uh, a ton of syndications. You know, if you have a great deal in the hopper and you just, and you, and you feel like it's a once in a lifetime opportunity, do it. Maybe it makes sense to co-GP and bring a partner in, teach his own, you know, depending on what your asset class is, size of the deal, et cetera. That's just my two cents on that. So that information leading into my first deal is important because I was a limited partner three times before I had gone out of my own and, and did a did our general partner deal, which which we did. So we bought a, uh, I might get a breakout in hives telling the story. It was so stressful. I remember it like very clearly, also because it wasn't that long ago, but I, uh, I'd been telling some select friends of mine in the business, which is emphasizes the key of relationships, which we all know is critical. One of them being an investment sales broker out of California, who's one of my closest friends in the business to this day said to him, hey man, I want to buy, I want to go out on my own in the near future and buy value-add unanchored retail deals. And you know how I look at real estate. You look at it very similarly. If you see anything, let me know. And he, and he, you know, we had looked at a ton of stuff. I'd flipped him deals, even though he was a broker. He said, I don't like it for you. You got to do the first one right. And then finally he called me one day after he knew that I was going out on my own. So it worked out really well. It was good timing. He was like, hey, I've got one for you. It was an off-market, single-tenant net lease on the border in the Dallas, Texas market, specifically in Irving, um, which anybody can look at on our website. And the story was really good. It was outstanding real estate. The rent was dramatically below market rent. And it was a situation where he had an inside track with the seller. And he was able to substantiate that the rent was below market because he was selling, his firm was selling the other 11 out parcels to the shopping center. And the rents were like $185,000, $225,000 for like Hooters and Twin Peaks and Chili's and all these restaurant groups. And then all the boarders over here paying less than a hundred grand. I'll put it to you that way. So going back to what we talked about earlier, that Delta between market rent and when we could monetize the real estate was pretty wide. The tenant had only a year left on the lease, which was great, but they did have two five-year options that we were willing and able and expecting them to exercise, which they have done. And so we're just cash flowing the property today, but because of, uh, because of a potential 11 year hold period, we wanted to make sure that there was really a wide gap between what the tenant was paying and market and that information was substantiated and we ended up buying it. So I put the property under contract. I put up a deposit of $25,000. I had to put up a second deposit 30 days later, which all 50 grand was going to go hard. And I just started calling everybody I knew that, you know, I had a, a, a good Rolodex of friends and fam, really friends and no family in the business, but um, just started calling friends and some family members saying, Hey, I've got this deal. What do you think? You know, you always talked about how you wanted to invest. And I, I made a ton of phone calls. I didn't, cause everybody talks about, Hey, I'd love to invest. I'd love to invest. But when the lights come on and there's a property under contract and there's a model in place and it's like, I need to know in the next week, like not everybody's real. And I, and so obviously by virtue of doing 12 deals now, like I know who's going to perform and the repeat investors are coming back over and over. And so the amount of phone calls I'm having to make on each syndication is decreasing, which I'm very thankful for. And I have the best partners in the world for it. Um, but at the beginning, it was hard to know because I didn't know who was a real partner who wasn't. So I basically had, so it was a $1.8 million deal paying all cash because it was not financeable. There was only a year left on the lease. And I had a tight time frame by getting it off market from that seller who was sophisticated, not our ideal profile seller. So that was scary within itself. 
and uh, I had the 25 grand up and I just started calling. I had like maybe a million to a million one figured out in the first 30 days, but with a lot of fish, you know, a lot of lines in the water to get people to uh, put up the balance of, of the equity raise, which was still like 40%. And the, I, I think I'm most grateful for the fact that I was naive because in retrospect, if I was really that behind on a raise, which we have never been ever since, I was really that behind, far behind on a raise moving forward, I probably would drop the deal. But because I was so bullish on the opportunity and believed in it and didn't really know any better and knew that ah, I've got another 30 days to figure it out, I had 50 grand. Next thing I knew, I had 50 grand hard and had to go figure out the other 700K or 800K, whatever it was. And long story short, I ended up getting it done. I have 23 partners in that deal, which is uh, more than usual um, in general. And it's more than usual even at Zig too. But uh, that the lesson in the acquisition alone was worth it. And uh, we're cash flowing, enjoying the property today and looking to, looking to monetize it at some point in the hopefully not too distant future, but we'll see. Yeah, so that's the story. I was 50 grand hard before I knew what I was doing. So there's definitely an element and, of risk and, that anybody who's considering doing syndications or any commercial real estate investing has to be willing to stomach. Oh yeah, that, that's 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 great advice. Um, I, and and I've had similar experience. Well, I haven't had the acquisition experience or, or anything, but I had a property in a contract recently where I had that situation where it was my money was going to go hard if I did not pull through on it. So it's like one of those things where it's it's a different story once your money is, is on the line. So uh, it's definitely good advice to share with people who are interested in going through uh, that process. Um, so you, you did mention uh, sourcing deals and sourcing capital. Mm -hmm. uh, I think a big part of the business is obviously those two components. And I remember you, I actually watched a uh, interview with you and, and Beth Azor. Uh, Beth actually was on a, a call with us a while back and you were talking about strategically, um, targeting individuals at different conferences or really just leveraging, making sure you can leverage the relationships effectively through targeted relationship building. Can you kind of talk a little bit about maybe your strategy and on that and, and how you've used it in order to uh, essentially grow your, your business? Yeah. I, uh, I've been fortunate to take two, nothing original, but maybe not as commonly taken paths as a, as an, you know, unanchored retail strip investor. The first of which is through social media. We've bought two properties from LinkedIn posting, which is free as far as financial investment goes. And we two of our best, one of our, our best deal that we've exited already, I would argue was done through a broker who found me on LinkedIn because I post often on there. And she reached out to me and brought me an off-market deal that we bought and then sold seven months later for a, a good return. Another deal was was bought that it's a, it's a Lululemon condo building in Cincinnati that we still own today, and uh, that that deal was brought to me off market just because somebody was like, I see this guy all over LinkedIn, and and he reached out to a former colleague of mine from when I was with Peb, and he's the guy. Thank God the guy at Peb uh, vouched for me and got the deal, and here we are, happy, happy go lucky cash flowing. So social media just marketing but not selling just saying putting stuff out there thoughts thinking seeing just noticing trends whatever just interacting and schmoozing with people on there to kind of cast a wide net uh from a networking perspective and then as, as a more micro like you know uh inch, inch wide mile deep approach taking the the personal relationships with the brokerage community really seriously 
a lot of my peers don't return brokers calls back. So, you know, I, there's someone on here named Jose. If Jose was an investment sales broker and called me about a property and it was a forecast with 15 years of term left and above market rent, like I would never buy that. But we take a lot of pride in calling Jose in this situation back because I don't know what else Jose has. And frankly, if Jose is a reputable enough broker to earn the listing of the developer or investor who put that deal together, then he probably sees a lot of other things. And so my thesis is, is it can't hurt to know if I spend 15, 20 minutes on the phone, who knows where that relationship goes. And one line that every broker who I've talked to has always heard me say is, is what do I need to do to get to the top of your list to where when you see that great deal, you think of us, because I'm not naive enough to think that if you are an elite broker and let's say St. Louis, that you don't have a hundred developers in St. Louis that you can call. And so we are very open and, and, and I would say, you know, easy for me to say, but very liberal as far as giving incentives to brokers for bringing us deals. We're happy to include brokers in the ownership side, whatever we need to do to get to the top of that list. As I mentioned before, we do it. And so a lot of the deal flow is coming through brokerage relationships on off-market transactions. And it's something that is going to continue to drive growth here. And now that we also have somebody who's exclusively focused on procuring deals on the acquisition side full-time, a guy by the name of Dan Sanfilippo, as I drop my pen, I apologize, uh, a guy by the name of Dan Sanfilippo, he's procuring deals directly with owners and making several hundred cold calls a week. I, I'm bullish that we'll get to where we need to go by working the broker jangle, as well as going straight to owners and building rapport with those, those sellers who, you know, just may be done with the assets and are looking to disposition them to a more entrepreneurial group who, group like us, who's got a higher risk tolerance. Definitely. No. And, and I, and I think I value a lot of what you said in particular on the, on the LinkedIn side, uh, just creating a brand. Uh, and I think that's, that's part of the reason why I reached out to you. I mean, I saw you doing a lot of the stuff on LinkedIn. I saw a few of your, your videos on YouTube and it, and obviously your, your podcast as well. So it's one of those things where creating content that's valuable to people, putting yourself out there opens you up to new opportunities and you know, what type of relationships could you can benefit from. So I think that was a great piece of advice. Yeah. And I know that, and I know the purpose of this call is to talk about retail syndications. And I mm -hmm. don't want to divert from it, but I think for those of you who are on here, you're obviously interested in networking. If you're not on clubhouse yet, assuming you have iOS, like iPhone, you need to get on it. That app is unbelievable. Uh, it's a way to instantly network with people. It's like podcasting and ICSC or any conference organization had a baby. And so I would highly recommend jumping on there if you haven't already. That's my, I'm done with the social media stuff because I know we're here to talk about retail syndication, but I just think between LinkedIn, Clubhouse and Instagram, everybody should be on there and active. And, um, and I, I, I give you a lot of credit, Raphael, for putting this together. I and mean, this is clearly a really cool platform. And I've already recommended it to a few people and some of my friends have jumped on today who will probably follow it as a result. And this is now going to give you real credibility as a, as somebody who's doing stuff in Louisville. So I appreciate what you're doing and, um, you know, just another opportunity. Thank you for having me. Now, now we can jump back into retail. No, and, and I appreciate your, your advice on the clubhouse uh, platform. Cause I, that's not one that I've explored a lot of yet, but I've seen a lot of people push it. And I, and I feel like there, it is a new medium that, that could be very valuable to people. So it's definitely one of those things that I'm excited to start looking more into um, in the coming months. So that's sure. awesome, man. So now that we understand a little bit about the retail syndication space, can you kind of tell us a little bit about how you see, retail evolving over the next, you know, couple of years, again, it depends on the parts of retail, but if you could kind of highlight uh, where you see over the next few years, retail evolving uh, as, as an industry. 
Yeah, so the pandemic is, has done everybody a favor. It stopped wasting our time. What I mean when I say that is the pandemic has expedited the inevitable. If you were a crappy retailer pre-COVID, COVID just made you go out of business faster and you ripped the Band-Aid off for a lot of people. And people who didn't recognize that they had bad retailers in their portfolio or were doing deals with bad retailers, et cetera, uh, are going to become exposed as a result of it. Pun totally not intended on exposed COVID, but anywho. And what it's also done is it's allowed the dynamic nimble companies to evolve and shift and improve their business model or roll out brand new concepts altogether. And there's certain retail categories that are crushing it as a result of the pandemic as well. So as so that, and obviously that has a lot to do with the current state of retail. Where I see it going is I see, I see what, and nothing that I'm about to say is super original other than the fact that I agree with it and you may not have heard it yet, but I think that a lot of retail stores are basically asked, acting as distribution centers that are really pretty to the consumer. And I think what the e-commerce guys are learning is that the necess that the retail storefronts are major necessities. I mean, you look at a retailer, and I don't know what the exact statistic is, but when you look at a retailer, when they close a location, their online, the, a brick and mortar location, their online sales decrease pretty substantially within the zip codes that they've closed that store in. That's not an accident. And the consumer pattern that first comes to mind for me based on experiences and talking to retail consumers is I buy a sweater online from whoever, Nordstrom, and it gets sent to my house. And if I don't like it, and it's, or if it doesn't fit me or whatever, I want to be able to go to Nordstrom to either exchange it and see if it fits me the correct way, or if there's a different color that I prefer. And that opportunity and that right of foot traffic to Nordstrom is critical. And what's going to make the retailers that are strong for the long term survive and, th and therefore thrive is when Richard or David or whoever walks into the store with that exchange, it becomes an exchange and then some, and they figure out a way to earn that customer's business and upsell them on other merchandise, or they provide a game-changing dynamic product like Apple does, like even the grocery, even some of the specialty grocery stores where, you know, you go to, go to Trader Joe's on Saturday morning and see what, see what that place looks like and tell me retail's dying. It's, 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 false. It's not, not even remotely a, a, a narrative that makes any sense. So that's where I, I just think that the pandemic has expedited the inevitable. And I see retail just becoming more aligned in the seesaw where brick and mortar stores were carrying all the heavy weight prior to e-commerce. And now the e-commerce guys, uh, either the independently only e-commerce guys need to match up with what retail are doing by adding retail stores and the brick and mortar only guys need to incorporate e-commerce as a part of their business structure in general. Unless if you're TJ Maxx, Home Goods, uh, Burling in Burlington, where you don't need websites because your business model or don't need outstanding out e-commerce websites because your business model is predicated on getting an adrenaline rush out of the con consumer because when they go to TJ Maxx and they see that Ralph Lauren shirt for $29.99, that's $60 otherwise, and they can't get it anywhere else because there's no guarantee that all the TJ Maxx's in the country have it, then you have a dynamic retail brand there as well. Almost certainly, yeah. That like, like it, and I'm sorry for the rant, but like it basically boils down to you, the retailers that 
provide some sort of value either through excellent customer service, excellent product or discounted pricing, they're going to win. And if you don't offer anything dynamic to the marketplace, you're going to lose. I mean, you're seeing a lot and I don't want to name any retailers, but these middle, these middle priced department stores that have, that don't offer anything different product wise, they don't offer anything different customer service wise, and you can price master stuff and it's 20% cheaper online, like Sears, for example, they lose and they should lose because they don't provide any value to the consumer base. So that's, so a retailer, any retailer that provides uh, value, a value proposition, the consumer will win. And those who don't will not exist anymore. And we'll be buying guys like you and I will be buying their former spaces at pennies on the dollar, looking to backfill them with the next dynamic retailer who will come in. Oh, for sure. No, definitely. Um, and, and I mean, like you said, I mean, like you said, retail is not dead. And I think a big reason for that is, I mean, you look at even companies like Amazon that are, that are incorporating a retail presence in their, in their, uh, their business model. And I think, I think Beth mentioned a while back uh, during the call that, you know, if you were to look at like catalog sales in the sixties uh, that used to make up about 10% of, of all retail sales. Uh, but now e-commerce most people think it's like 30, 40, 50%, but prior to the pandemic, I think it was like six or 7%. It was, a, like so I remember when it was a hot trend at the open air center conference or no, this was Nexus in like 2017. I took notes that I still have in my tablet to two to this day. So it went from 7% and the narrative was e-commerce is taking over the world. It went up to nine. And today, even during the pandemic, which it, you would think it would have exploded out of the water because all retail sales were closed for at least several weeks. Some are still closed to this day. Obviously, some a lot have opened up since then. E-commerce sales are at 14, 15%. And I think that continues to grow up. I, I'm not naive to that. Mm-hmm. But to take over the whole world, you know, you need to have more than 14, 15% of market share. I mean, yeah. You know, and 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 then you see the e-commerce giants opening stores, whether it's the little dynamic guys like Allbirds all the way up to the Amazons of the world, they're all opening physical brick and mortar stores. They're conceding, not that they were ever arguing, they're conceding to the fact that you have to have a retail presence. You have to. It's, it's a distribution center that, that can get your top line revenue up on the short term and build a brand long term. Definitely, that's some great advice. So as a final question, before we open it up to q and I just want to, I always ask uh, all our guests to kind of provide us with some of the top resources that, that you, you recommend as far as this particular topic, which is, you know, retail and retail syndications, uh, maybe podcast books, conferences, et cetera. Sure. The, so for those of you who are in brokerage out there and like podcasts and are interested in retail syndication because you want to buy properties at some point. There's an interesting podcast out there called Broker Lord by a good friend of mine named Derek Walchek. Uh, Broker Landlord, I've put together in case you didn't pick up on that. Uh, great podcast. He interviews one person in each state and he's going through the process still. So he's only been through like 10 or 12 states where he interviews, where he interviews someone who's a broker turned landlord. Great stories, very relatable, I'm sure, to a lot of the people who are listening to this or, or on the Zoom call today. Uh, the best book out there that I've ever put hands on, and it was basically like my real estate Bible, Torah, whatever you want to use the analogy for, was a book called uh, Investing in Retail Properties by Gary Rappaport. It can be found on ICSC's website. I just lent it to, to Dan, who I referenced earlier, who just started with us on the acquisition side. It's, it's like a textbook, and I recommend treating it that way. This is not like entertaining 
nighttime reading, like if in order to get the most out of the book, which I spent plenty of time on the weekends when I was potting my exit from Peb to go out on my own, taking meticulous notes in on how to structure deals. And a lot of those principles are, are put into how we structure our partnerships at Zig. So that's the, that's the best podcast and book I can recommend uh, as it specifically relates to the, to the topic. And then I'd be, I'd be, a, I'd be a schmuck if I didn't say that if you're looking to hear good stories of people who have done it as well, uh, listening to, you know, there's some other podcasts out there like, like mine, uh, Limitless, How to Crush It in Commercial Real Estate, where we hear about individual stories of kind of getting to the top of the business as well. So definitely. And I'll, I'll vouch for your podcast. I listen to a few of the episodes and great, great content. So definitely something you should definitely check out. So what I'll go ahead and do now is we'll open it up to Q&A. So if you guys want to uh, plug away in the chat box right now, we're also live on Facebook. So anyone on Facebook who has any questions, feel free to type it out and we'll, we'll ask away. All right. Let's see. Check the, the chat box real quick. Yeah, sure. Take your time. Yeah, no worries. All right. Um, so, oh, it's Broker Lord. Yeah. So I think someone was asking about the... the Broker Lord. Yep, yeah, by Derek Walchek. Great guy. Awesome. Okay. Ernie, do you have a question? Yeah, I, I was just curious how your uh, typical uh, waterfall works. Sure. One of your average investments. Sure. So we just run a prep promote structure. Uh, we're typically in the 6 to 8% range on the prep. And then any cash flow or sale proceeds above whatever the negotiated pref is, is structured in a GPLP split on the promote. Uh, our promotes range, depending on the deal, from 25 to 35% for the GP, and then 65 to 75% to the LPs to the capital stack. So meaning if you put in $100,000 for the Nate pref deal at a 25-75 split, the first $8,000 a year uh, prorated goes to you and then uh, and then anything above that, you know, if, let's say there was a 9% return, the first 8% would go to you. That last 100 bips would get split. 25% goes to Zig or 25 cents on the dollar, let's say, goes to Zig. And then 75 cents on the dollar would go to you, Ernie, as a limited partner. Does that, does that clearly answer your question? I want to make sure. Uh, yes, yes. And I assume you're using the PPM type format. Yeah, we use just standard operating agreement. You know, we're we're you know we've we've got language in there that basically says, hey, you're you're accredited. You're 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 not. You're, I didn't sucker you into doing this. I didn't hold a gun to your head, and you uh, you're capable of losing the money and it not affecting your life. And uh, and it's based just very basic. Most most people are that are signing the agreement are very friendly with me, and I'm very friendly with them. And there's a good trusting relationship there that I'm not going to screw them, and they're hopefully not going to screw me either. For sure. I had, a question. I, had a, I had a question primarily related to more so not necessarily retail syndication, but again, more so related to development. Is that something that you guys have considered doing long term or is that like a long term strategy or you, you really just prefer buying properties and then building them up uh, or adding value to them and then kind of. Yeah, so so we do do development. It's not uh, off, if it's a larger development, we'll certainly JV it. I'm fortunate to have great relationships with developers all over the country. So depending on where the asset is. We will do a joint venture in a development situation where we're typically running point on the capital stack and the leasing efforts while the developer, our partner will be running point on, or maybe we're working together on the financing side, but they're really running point on like due diligence and 
construction and and you know entitlements and rezoning and all that it's it's i'm i know enough to be dangerous but i also know what i don't know and i, I know where we're really focused on trying to be experts in and where we're not we don't like to lose good deals so that's why we'll jv those opportunities um and then we do buy vacant older you know dilapidated buildings sometimes or, or even vacant well-positioned new construction buildings that doesn't matter but if it's not a quick hit leasing exercise, then there is a redevelopment associated with it. We just make sure that we partner up with the best general contractors out there and, and, and accomplish what the tenants need in order, to, uh, in order to create value to the asset, get NOI in place, and not having to stomach the burden of uh, the expenses associated with the vacant property anymore. Oh, for sure. Definitely. All right. So Steve has a question. He said, uh, what percentage of deals lose money? How is the loss distributed through to investors? So great topic. We're fortunate, probably because I haven't done enough of them and we haven't been doing a lot enough to really lose our butts on a deal yet. Deals do lose money all the time, of course. In fact, we often are buying in situations where the seller is losing money. However, there's a way to lose money in a good way. And if you're unfamiliar with the concept of cost segregation, I highly recommend looking into what a cost segregation study is. I think I think I saw on the website that you'd had Yona Weiss on here before. He's, well, he's coming. He's coming in two weeks. So oh, good. He should be, okay, be so I'm not going to steal his thunder because that he's totally an expert, uh, mm-hmm. and I know what I don't know. And I'm got I've gotten intricately familiar with cost segregation studies uh, over the last two years, and I've done probably four or five already. Uh, most of them with Yona, but you can show a loss. There's an avenue of in this country, there's a there's the way the tax laws are set up right now is if you buy a property and the and you get a cost segregation study done, what that study basically does is it values the, the let's call it, let's say you paid a million bucks for a property and you've got a Chipotle on it or a rest of like a restaurant or a medical building where the improvements are expensive. What a company like Jonas does, and they do it very well, is they allocate a percentage of the property that goes towards the improvements and the percentage that goes towards the land. As a real estate investor, you want the land percentage to be tiny. You want the improvements percentage to be massive. The reason being is the way tax laws work in this country is land is not depreciable. You can't depreciate. No, you're right. You're right. Yeah. Yeah. Is that the right word? Depreciable? Yeah. Yeah, of course. And the improvements on that land are right. It's just like, you know, if you buy a hood for a restaurant or uh, a MRI machine for a medical facility. When you buy, it's just like a car. You buy it day one, it's worth X. As soon as you drive it off the lot or as soon as you use it a little bit, it's worth less. So you're able to depreciate that. And what you can do, and Yona will talk about this, and, and you, if, you're, if you're listening to me right now, the best advice I can give you today is listen to Yona when he comes on in two weeks, uh, is, is you can take the losses on your tax return associated with the depreciation and offset income with it. So if you're cash flowing, so if you have a tenant that's paying you rent in a building that's $50,000 a year in rent to cash flow to you, and you depreciate greater than $50,000 on your cost segregation study and that year's tax return, you're showing a loss and can offset that loss in income against your other income from what, however you make money. If you're in real estate, it's unlimited as a real estate practitioner. So you can be 
putting money in your pocket and cash flow and show loss on your tax return through cost segregation studies. Yoda will explain it in a far more sophisticated, articulate way because he's an expert and he's a really bright guy. Uh, but as the end investor, that's all we're looking at. And I am a major advocate if you're holding on to properties long-term to do cost tax studies. So the answer to Steve's question is yes, you can show a loss and sometimes it can be a good thing. For sure. Awesome advice. All right. So Frank, Hey Frank. So he's asking, how do you typically handle financing? Like your debt stacking? Great question. Sometimes it's all cash because there's a quick trigger and the deal's not very financeable. We're like I oversimplify our business all the time. People are like, Oh, how, what's your whole period? We sell it when it's worth the most. Well, how do you go about, you know, leveraging and going with banks? Do you guys pay all cash? We only go to, we try to only go to banks when, when, we feel like we're in a good position to do so when we have long-term leases in place, what have you. So like, for example, right now we're chasing a vacant 13,000 square foot building. That's well-located in order to get the aggressive pricing that we're looking for. We got to close quick and that's not vacant retail right now is not the most exciting thing to lenders uh, in case anybody hasn't uh, picked up on that concept yet. So we're willing and able and prepared to have to pay all cash for that deal. And then once we get, you know, the tenants that we want, like, Hopefully we get, you know, Chipotle, Starbucks, Aspen Dental, all the sexy tenants and have signed leases in hand. Then we'll dangle those signed leases to a lender and say, now it's time to talk about a loan. And they'll be smiling ear to ear, you know, excited to lend us money. So that's sort of conceptually how we do it. Uh, and, a, and then, and then get into, with the redevelopments, Frank, we're, we're typically not uh, getting Unless if we have a ten, unless we're doing like a preferred development situation, like we've done with my American Family Care business, which is a whole separate business that I'm in, um, you know, we're typically not financing those. And then if they're cash flow deals, you know, we're obviously very sensitive to getting uh, good yield, good cash on cash returns. So that often involves having longer amortization schedules and lower equity injections. But at the same time, I'm going to talk out of both sides of my mouth here and say that we're also prudent about paying down the property. So we kind of blend that uh, accordingly. So I, I hope that. Oh, sorry. Oh, sorry. I think, I think we accidentally muted you. Sorry about that, bud. That's okay. Um, I, I, Frank, I hopefully that answers your question and if you have a follow-up, feel free to type it in the chat. So in, in actually a question off of that question. So is in the case where you're buying these properties all cash, um, what's usually the typical turnaround for getting the refinancing out? Is it one of those things where it's usually very deal specific? Deal specific, yeah, I hate that answer, but that is the truth here is really just depends on how quickly we can execute on the business plan. And believe me, no one's more motivated to get that done and, and you know, uphold and continue to earn the right of having a good reputation as a sponsor than, than, than we are. That's awesome. Good advice. All right. So if you guys have any questions on Zoom, feel free to chat away. I'm, I'm, che I'm checking Facebook as well. We have a few people on there watching as well. Okay. So it looks like you, you answered, looks like you answered all the questions that everyone had. Um, first off, I just want to thank you so much for uh, taking your time to stop by today and answer some questions that we had today. I, I think a lot of people in the group got a ton of value from it. And as I said before, we will be recording this. Um, actually, one second. I think I, I don't want to mess, mess up your name, but let, let's say uh, depending on the deal, do you entertain CO GP opportunities as you being the lead sponsor? 
Yeah, yeah. Co GP opportunities are, are, are opportunities that we look at. We've done, I think, account. Somebody asked me yesterday. We've done four JVs of the twelve with, you know, sponsors who have ridiculously sophisticated operating platforms and full accounting and property management. That ain't Zig. So we leverage them in those situations and their infrastructure. Uh, you know, we do the heavy lifting on some of the JVs. So based on, you know, if a broker brings a broker shop brings in a deal and it's an overwhelming screamer and they have the, the ability and the willingness to really want to roll up their sleeves and get their hands dirty on the, on the execution plan, then we're open to, to co-GP this, this deal. So yeah. Uh, yeah. We absolutely entertain that to answer, to answer that question. Great advice and great information. So, okay. So what, what we'll go ahead and do is we'll wrap up. Um, but I really do appreciate it again. Like I said, Aaron, uh, for your time, uh, if, how can people get in contact with you if they want to learn a little bit more about you and what you do? Yeah, sure. So I typed my email in the chat earlier, but uh, I, I'm pretty easy to find. If you go to our website, zuckerig.com, that's, uh, it's like Zuckerberg, but with no Berg, IG as an investment group.com or zuckerinvestmentgroup.com. Either way, it'll take you there. My information, I'm, you know, if you go to the about us, you can find some information on myself. Uh, I am on LinkedIn and I'm the guy who looks like I do in my picture and uh, looks like a 12 year old. And I'm on Instagram as well, Aaron.Zucker as well. That's my username for Clubhouse as well. And happy to connect with anybody at any time and pay it forward or share advice or look at deals. If you have anything, we're, we're certainly active and willing and able to do so. And um, that would be, that would be the, uh, best way to reach me for sure. And, I, and like I said, I will include this, I'll include his, his LinkedIn, Instagram website as well on, in the show description notes on the YouTube channel. So for you guys who are watching us on YouTube, just check the description and you guys can grab all that information. So again, thank you all for stopping by. Uh, we'll, we'll adjourn at 1256. So thanks everyone. All right, guys. It was good seeing you guys. Yeah, Raphael, appreciate you having me. This was awesome. I really, really appreciate your time. Oh, of course, man. Uh, thanks again for stopping by. We'll see you guys.